When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to people employed in fields threatened in one way or another by the Trump administration's agenda. These are the stories of people doing difficult, important jobs, jobs that may get a lot more difficult and a lot more important in the years ahead. Trump himself uh, recently tweeted that all negative polls are fake news. While that statement is obviously indefensibly ridiculous, we wanted to get a better sense of why it was so ridiculous. So to do that, we we talked to a pollster. Uh, we spoke with Jim Gerstein this episode. He's of GBA Strategies, a company that conducts public opinion research and qualitative polling for Democratic candidates, advocacy groups, and others. He, he led us through his daily efforts from developing good questions to conducting polls to analyzing the results to help us better understand what actually goes into a poll, positive, negative, or otherwise. And of course, we also talked about how the recent election is changing the way people look at polling data. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Gerstein talks about how he got started and how his work on Israeli electoral politics shaped his subsequent career. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Jim Gerstein. I am a public opinion researcher for... A company called GBA Strategies. Is your name one of the initials? There? I am the G in GBA Strategies. I we picked our names out of a hat to see what order we could go in, and uh, I, I drew the lucky straw. So, what is your actual work? Most of our clients are candidates for political office on the Democratic side, advocacy groups, nonprofit organizations. We also do work for some civic institutions and businesses as well. And the thing that ties all of the work together is getting public opinion to help inform these strategies, try and figure out how they can lead people to where they want them to go. So is it fair to characterize this by and large then, if we're talking about public opinion, uh, as, as 
polling as we would understand it, or is, is that an inaccurate term? In yeah, uh, polling is part of it. It's a variety of survey research. We also do qualitative research. So we will do focus groups or one-on-one -on -one interviews with people within those audiences that we want to learn from. What are the biggest differences between the kind of qualitative focus group-based research that you do and phone surveys with large bodies of people that you're analyzing? And the big difference is, is how you use it. And we like to say that surveys, those are those give you the what, and focus groups give you the why. Now, it's a little bit of a simplification because you're getting what and why in both, but the, the surveys will give you a snapshot in time of where the public is quantitatively in a representative sample. You can say, okay, 60% of the American public believes X, right? The focus groups, again, they really tell you, well, well, why do they believe X? And let's say X is the 60% of the public supports having Syrian refugees come into the country. So we know that now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making Maybe, up the yeah, number, sure. the, but yeah. the, the, it's an illustri illustrative example. Uh, the, uh, and the focus will say, well, why? Well, because their families were, were immigrants or because they see the images on TV and, and it just draws them into to accepting because, you know, for whatever reasons, we learn in the focus groups and that's how they're used differently. I, and, and you can see how they complement each other because just to know what the number is, yeah, it's important, it's valuable, but to understand what's behind it will help you communicate it better. It will help you understand it better. It will help you understand how this debate can shift people's views on it. And uh, that's why we, we like to do both whenever possible. What are your clients doing with the information once they receive it? It's multifold. Uh, the first piece is for them to understand the context in which they're working. So if it is a candidate for office, it's to understand the mood of the electorate before we get into the details. But that's the next part of it is once we understand the context in which we're working to then get into the other pieces that may drive decisions. So how they view an, an individual or view an issue or view an organization and what messages you can use to lead the people to arrive at the conclusions that you are seeking to advance. Are you involved at all with that kind of downstream application of the research? Yes. Yeah, so we as a company try to be involved both on the front end and on the back end in, in order to make the research as useful for the clients as possible. How do you figure out what you're going to pursue uh, for any given client? Is that part of the conversations that you're having with them about strategy and yeah, planning? And it's fine. It's the same exact question that the clients ask us when we first start the process. We'll start out any project where we sit down with the, with the clients to get their input to understand what it is that they're seeking to learn from this, uh, what kind of maybe disputes they have within their team over which direction to go. The research is a great arbiter of that. Mm -hmm. But it's only a great arbiter if everybody feels that it's legitimate and they, and they feel it's legitimate if their voice is heard in the survey itself. Mm -hmm. So we draft a questionnaire based on their input and there's a iterative process where we get their feedback on what they, oh, this was missing from the survey or I love this, make sure we don't cut it. And if all goes well, it goes into the field quickly. <laughs> How long does that, that process from, from those initial conversations to the actual deployment right. usually take? 
each case is different. If something's breaking in the news really quickly and you need to see how people are reacting to it in order to, to inform your understanding of what's going on, we can quickly put together a questionnaire and get into the field in, in a day or two. Other projects, there's not such an urgency to it. Uh, if it's a campaign, you, you know when the election's going to be, you know when you want to do your, your baseline research, and you know when you want to do your tracking survey so you can plan ahead and take your time. That could be anywhere from a week to two months, depending on how, 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 uh, how quickly the client wants to move. So can, can you give us an example of one of those more hurried uh, operations where you have to respond quickly to something that's breaking, something that's happening in the news? Sure. Um, the uh, call me letter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the call me letter was a surprise. An, an October surprise that happened you know, re- really uh, on the eve of the election. And that's one where you, you're not sure how people may react to it. I mean, we suspect that when the lead law enforcement official in the country is impugning the integrity or honesty of the candidate, that that's going to have an impact on people. But you want to understand more, really, is it important to them at this point in the election how can you possibly react to something like that, given the, the position or the credibility of the lead law enforcement officer in the country? So in, in that circumstance, what kind of questions would you be asking uh, and, and, and who would you be asking them to? I mean, you would be targeting uh, the electorate as a whole, or you could be looking at your battleground states, or you could be looking at just the you could zero in on the, the voters that you think are going to make the difference in the election. And, and what you'd want to understand is, is does this change their views on how they were going to vote, specifically the undecided voters, um, which we can see there was a lot of evidence that this did move votes. Yeah. Um, and you understand why, though. What is it that, you know, what is it about what he did, what he's saying that's raising the doubts, that's causing this slippage that you see in the actual head to head horse race? Mm-hmm. And when you can understand what it is that's driving that, that helps you know how best to address those concerns that voters would have. Um, that late in the race, it's very hard to do. Uh, I am definitely in the uh, school of thought that the, that the Comey letter made a big difference in the election. But Are you looking for uh, phrases that a candidate or a campaign might use in response to a sudden event? What kind of questions right. are first you asking? You're, first thing you want to do is assess the impact. Okay. So you, you've got all this what we call tracking data over time in which you can see on key measures, whether it's the actual head-to-head vote, opinions towards candidates that they have on their on certain attributes, whether it is leadership or honesty or being an advocate or fighting for that voter, you can see what things are moving and what thing, which aspects of this you need to address because you know certain things are very important in uh, determining people's vote. The other thing you want to see is enthusiasm. Does this have a have an impact on people's enthusiasm for each candidate, and how do you if it's an enthusiasm question, you want to you need to address that. If it's one segment of the population is moving, well, that means that that's who you need to target your communications to in a way that helps address the concerns that that segment of the population has. Okay. So, does the the research that a firm like yours does differ significantly from the kind of work that uh, a big name firm like Rasmussen or something like this is doing that shows up in the news all the time? Right. Well, I think the distinction is not necessarily in the sizes of the organization, but the purpose of the companies. 
And for example, Gallup. Gallup asks a lot of contextual questions about uh, what's the job approval of the president. They ask that on a daily rolling basis. And they'll ask certain things about how do you feel about this issue or that issue? How do you feel about the Muslim ban or the Access Hollywood tape? or whatever? You know, They'll ask a series of questions. What's different between that and what the polling companies that work for candidates as opposed to news organizations is we're trying to help figure out strategy that will move voters, uh, uh, move Americans to the positions that your client wants. So that's what we do. That's what the Republican pollsters do. Uh, we're on the Democratic side. So, you know, we it's funny. We'll look at poll results and uh, have more in common and more more appreciation for what the Republican pollsters are doing because we know they're coming at it from a similar approach and than we would, as say, just a, a Gallup or, or a news organization. You are in a profession that is heavily focused on demographics that has to be extremely attentive to breakdowns by age, by gender, uh, by ethnicity, and so on. What are the demographic breakdowns of your field like? Haven't done a survey of them, <laughs> but uh, I guess I could look around the room at various meetings. Uh, it's There is a range of generations, good, nice age range. Um, you, uh, the other demographics in terms of gender, it's it's traditionally like many industries, uh, especially in politics, has been more male than female. But uh, fortunately, we're starting to see that change a lot in the last 10 years or so. Uh, in terms of racial demographics, again, it's it's been mostly white for a long time. But again, we're seeing more diversity uh, and more African-Americans, more Hispanics, Asian Pacific Islanders as well. I'd say it's still not representative of the country as a whole. And uh, a lot of work needs to be done. Something that we're focused on as a company for, for sure. Do you think that those limits on diversity and representation affect the kind of work that your profession more generally can do? I think a company with diversity in it benefits from the diverse backgrounds that people have because people bring different perspectives to the table. And so I think the more diverse a company is, the better it should be at their work, especially in this field where you're trying to understand different people's perspectives across the country. It's important to have those perspectives within your office. How much your time is spent in business development? Are you having to sort of seek out new clients a lot of the time? Often our, our business development strategy has been do good work for the existing clientele. Because if you're doing good work for the existing clientele, they're going to come back to do more work and they're going to tell other people to hire you and people at that existing company are going to move to another company. We're going to move to, and, and that's how... Or another campaign, I imagine, too. In the, politics especially, you see a lot of movement between... Absolutely. And so if you're doing good work and, and people enjoyed the experience of working with you and felt that you provided a good product, to us, that's the best way that you can develop your business. You've been listening to Jim Gerstein. After this brief break, he talks about day-to-day life on the job. 
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So what's an ordinary day like for you? The days can range from traveling across the country to go to focus groups where you're moderating these discussions and listening to voters. So you still do that kind of work? Yeah. My partners and I, we all agree that hearing directly from voters is invaluable. And it puts a face on the numbers when you see the results in it. In a survey, you can think of the different people in the focus group and why, why they're answering these questions in the survey the way they are. So one day could be uh, taking the uh, commuter jets to small airports in swing states around the country. It could be a day where you've got a bunch of phone calls with clients all day. It could be a day where you have none and you're writing and you're analyzing and you're preparing data. It varies each day, which keeps it interesting. Do you have a standard schedule at all? Is there a time when you usually get started, a time when you usually end the day? It, schedule is often dictated by family needs, right? Sure. So in the school year, it's easy to get to the office after the kids are off to school. And in the summer, it's after they're off to camp, which is earlier. So I get to the office earlier <laughs> in the summer. Um, but uh, try to get home in time to have some dinner with family and get the kids to bed. And then depending on the the season and how much work we've got going, it may involve a lot of work after I, they're in bed. I assume a lot of the focus groups, a lot of polling is conducted in the evening when people are available. Uh, does that mean that you are often on the job in the evening? When we're doing focus groups, yes. And I would say that those are the days that are the longest days because you have your full day of work and then the focus groups start at 5.30, 6 o'clock and you, they'll go until 10 o'clock. That is a long day. Um, the polls themselves, yes, they're they're conducted at night, but uh, I'm not sitting on the phone calling a thousand people across sure. the country. We we have a calling house uh, that we subcontract to, and we will monitor the calls. But uh, we'll have folks in our office who listen to to some of the calls to make sure that funny names are being pronounced correctly <laughs> and that the survey is being administered uh, properly as it was written. And then in the morning is when we look at the data as it comes in to 
to see if there were any problems in the calls or if, if anything. So you're then perusing it and at that point already starting to think toward analysis? And No, we don't. We, we really don't do any of the analysis on the okay. partial data because results change. There's a reason why we have a, uh, a large sample uh, to reduce the error. Uh, the other thing that we do when the survey is complete is we will weight the data because while we try to produce as random a uh, sample as possible and as representative a sample as possible, uh, it doesn't always come back that way. You have some response bias and it's harder to reach young people, for example, on the phone. They are doing more interesting things at night than than older people. And if um, I can speak for my generation, we try not to answer the phone if possible. I, I'm fully aware of that, actually. <laughs> it takes longer to reach uh, your generation. We do reach them, but sometimes we won't reach enough of them. And so we will need to weight the data up a little bit so that that group is sufficiently represented in the sample. At what point are you able to really start thinking about total analysis? So if we finish a survey um, 10 o'clock Eastern, we can then run the data overnight if it's urgent, or we will run it in the first thing in the morning and be able to produce the top line results and the cross tabs. Um, the what are cross tabs? Ah, okay. For so, our listeners. Sure. <laughs> and cross for tabs. So first the top line results, that's, you know, okay, what percentage of the people approve of President Obama and what percentage disapprove? And and that's something we will usually produce by noon the next day. The cross tabs are, okay, so we know that 58% approve of Obama and 40% disapprove and 2% are undecided. But uh, we're really curious to see, well, what is that among voters under the age of 30? So a crosstab will have what's the result uh, on job approval by age. So under 30, 30 to 49, 50 to 64, over 64. And that's and we have a, we will have a book of crosstabs for each question in the survey. And that book takes a little longer to produce, uh, but we can have that in the afternoon. And then after all that's done... Uh, we'll also produce something if it's a tracking survey. We'll produce something called a time series where we can see, okay, so back on January 3rd, his job approval was 50. But then on March 1st, it was 53. And then on June 1st, it was 56. And you can see the trend. So then we can look at that by demographic. Oh, well, what's driving this movement? Um, so that's another piece. And then once all these pieces are, are put together, well, we will start analyzing it and coming up with our theory of the case. When you are setting out to do a focus group, let's say, how do you find the people that you're actually going to engage with, uh, solicit information from? So focus groups uh, have a fairly straightforward process to it. First of all, we'll sit down with the client. We'll say, okay, the budget will allow us to do two focus groups or four focus groups. So we know that our, let's say it's for an issue advocacy group, um, and they're very interested in seeing how young people are going to drive the debate. So we'll divide up the group and we'll say, okay, well, what's different about the different young people? Well, let's do groups in different regions of the country. And we'll say, okay, well, in Florida, we'll do women and men. We'll split them up into two groups. And in Nevada, we'll split it up into Hispanics and whites. And you know, we'll mix the gender in Nevada and we'll mix the race in, in Florida. So now we've we've gotten our criteria, our, our specifications for what we want. And those are then, conversations you have with the client? Yes. And then we will contact the focus group facility in in Florida and one in Nevada. And those are 
facilities that you contract out to? Yes. Yes. And they are there are focus groups facilities all over the United States, uh, especially in markets where corporations want to do a lot of market research because they're trying to sell candy bars. And there are focus group facilities all over the country servicing this industry, and they have databases. So we say, okay, for this facility in Orlando, Florida, we're going to have a group of men ages 18 to 30 who are not partisan Democrats, not partisan Republicans, and are undecided in their vote for president. And so the focus group facility has a database, and they will call through that database uh, and ask them a set of screening questions that we've provided them. And when people pass that screener, they their name gets filled out on a list and their demographic criteria, and they'll send us that list. We'll look and we'll see, okay, well, it looks like this group has been you're, – you're, you're, you're filling this one really well. But this one, it looks like we're a little heavy on uh, the independence lean Democrat. So for the rest of it, we want you to do independence or lean Republican. Mm-hmm. And then we show up. At what point in the process have you crafted the questions that you'll be asking? So for a focus group, we call it the discussion guideline. And during that 10 days to two weeks of recruiting is when we write the discussion guideline with the client. Discussions last about two hours. And it's a mixture of open-ended questions where we're really trying to get people uh, their input uh, in their own words. And then the the questions become less general, more specific, and we could be testing messages or we could be showing them television commercials or we could be giving them video of candidates talking and getting their reactions to that. So it starts general, it moves to specific. What's the rationale behind that? You don't want to influence their perceptions of individuals or things that you want to know. You don't want to bias the responses based on information that you're giving them previously, so, but you still want to understand the context in which, which we're working and you want to get before you start putting your ideas in front of them, you want to hear in their language, in their point of view, what they're thinking. Do you find when you're developing these questions that you have to balance what your client wants to hear with what they need to hear? <laughs> That's a gentle way of putting it, Jacob. But um, yes, we. Uh, the hardest part really is when you're working with clients, they only want to often want to hear their point of view. but a good survey or a focus group discussion needs to be a balanced discussion in order to get a high quality response. What I mean by that is if we're only presenting one side's arguments throughout the survey, you're going to start to see people on the other side drop out of that survey and skew your your they're, sample. They're going to lose focus, they're not going to They're going to they're going to lose interest. They're going to think why are why am I getting this questionnaire and all it's doing is attacking Hillary Clinton? It doesn't make any sense. This must be a Trump thing. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. and they'll hang up. And then, so your sample will be disproportionately Republican or vice versa. You are, though, personally coming at this from a partisan perspective. You work exclusively with Democratic candidates, as I understand it. Yes. As your firm now. Um, do you ever have to worry about your own biases or those of, uh, of your employees, your partners, when you're crafting questions thinking through your research? Right. I mean, we aren't doing our Democratic clients or progressive organization clients or whoever. We're not doing them any benefit by bringing a biased perspective to the table. We have a goal of winning, but the process has to be very 
balanced and unbiased in order to be good at achieving the goal and developing the path because it doesn't do anybody any good to be have blinders on and not is there a trick to taking those blinders off and checking your own bias at the door i think one of the best tools is going to those focus groups and hearing people's with different perspectives and how they're talking about things and understanding where they're coming from that helps a lot uh, to be able to craft different messages for 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 both sides of the debate is it ever hard for you to hear the other side no i mean honestly it's it is eye opening to go around the country and hear different people's perspectives and where they're coming from and what motivates them and how their days are going and what's important to them and i don't mean to sound uh cliche or anything like that but like people have important things to say and i love hearing from them so yes i have been moderating focus groups where you hear things that you wouldn't want your kids to hear and i'm not talking about bad words i'm talking about bad ideas um and you just have to have a straight face there and and listen to, to folks and power through it um but it, it is a, a professional challenge and interest to understand what's behind that and how do you develop a strategy that's going to change that when you're there for a focus group while it's being conducted how involved are you in the process are you in the room with the group or are you behind a glass wall right. what what's your relationship so the 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 physical structure is that you've got a a room with a conference table and about 10 people sitting around the conference table you may have a television that they can watch video or a blackboard where you can write on not a blackboard but a, a a whiteboard, thank you. And that's one room. And then in that room are the participants plus the moderator. On the other side of that wall, you'll have a well, you'll have a big glass that is a one-way mirror, so the people can observe. People, you know, the clients and our, our the rest of our team and of observers can watch the focus group and listen to it and hear what they're saying and and, and see it all. And but the people in the in the room. While they know that there's people watching them, and we're very clear, and we tell them that up front, uh, that they can't see the people in the back room. Mm -hmm. So which side are you on? I, I am generally on the side with the participants okay. moderating the focus so you, group. Oh, so you're actually asking the questions. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Is that a skill you've had to develop over time? That... Uh, yeah, I mean, and like anything, you're you're always learning something, right? <laughs> I don't think anyone has, has mastered uh, every every particular skill that's out there. First, I learned it from observing focus groups. You certainly, I think, need to bring a certain skill set of being able to listen and truly listen to people and want to know what they have to say and learn what they and, and have a, a sincere interest in what they have to say uh, in order to be good at it. Uh, a good focus group is when the moderator hardly talks at all, <laughs> but just needs to kind of steer it uh, and get through the discussion guideline. So, um, uh, it was a matter of, of, of learning it through observation and then doing it. And the first time I did it wasn't as good as the second time I did it. Is, and, when, and the third time was better. So what uh, form does the the work, that you, the information that you pull out of those focus groups uh, take when, when it goes to your clients? I, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what forms a pulling data from, from a phone survey might take. Mm -hmm. uh, but are you writing up a report of the focus group? Are you just giving them raw video? Is it edited clips? What's it's, it look like? It's funny. It, 
different clients want different things. Uh, some clients want a written report that includes quotes and really feels very deep and qualitative and, and they want to read through it. They want to spend the time to really go through it. Other clients, they want to understand the big takeaway and they aren't interested in all the detail. So instead of a detailed lengthy memo, they want to have 10, 15 slides that have the big points and a couple of support pieces of supporting evidence. Some clients want to see the videos themselves and some clients say, I don't have time for that. And <laughs> it, it, it just, it, it varies, but we want them to know the, you know, when you entered this, you wanted to learn X, Y, and Z. Well, this is what we learned about X. This is what we learned about Y. And this is what we learned about C. And here's the big picture about how these things relate to each other and what are the other driving dynamics that are taking place here. Or is it ever difficult there to present hard news to them? I mean, if, if the results are not what they were hoping to hear, do you have to soften the blow? That's the hardest conversation to have with a client uh, in a political campaign situation is two weeks out or one week out and they've given it their all. They've poured their life into this campaign for a year and it's, you know, it's clear that it's highly unlikely not going well. that, that, you know, that they're not going to pull it out. But it doesn't do people any good to, let me give you an example. When a candidate is losing by 10 or 15 points with a week out and they say, you know what? I'm thinking of putting in my own money to make up the gap here. <laughs> and and you know that it's highly, highly unlikely that that money that they put in in their, you know, their savings and that they're going to have to take out loans for is going to get them across the, the, the victory line. You need to be honest with them and say, look, this is what the data shows. I'm not saying, yeah, anything can happen. We know that. But, but in our experience, it, we've never seen somebody make up this big of a gap in this short of time and this is with these kinds of dynamics. We will be with you the whole way, no matter what you decide, and we will fight, continue to fight. And we believe, you know, we only work with candidates that we believe in, and we believe in what you're doing, and we want to be there by your side. But uh, we want you to, before you dip into the savings, we want you to see where this all lies. And and that's a hard conversation to have, but I think you need to be honest and speak to the data in a way that. Uh, that they're making sound decisions about their own livelihoods and their own their own their own lives. You've been listening to Jim Gerstein. In a minute, he talks about how the results of the recent presidential election are changing the way that some of us are thinking about and looking at polls. I know you weren't working on the 2016 presidential campaigns, but uh, has Donald Trump's largely unexpected victory uh, affected the work that you're doing now at all? I mean, it, in there's a couple of different aspects to that. One is, as you said, it was unexpected. So we need to learn from 2016 to see, well, why was it unexpected? And are there any changes we need to do in how we approach our methodology? Uh, the truth of the matter is that the national polls were actually on target, Um the average before the election was plus three for Clinton, and she won by two. The statewide polls were not, and there were big differences between the results in many of the key states, and we're looking at that to try and see how do we do things differently, if we need to do things differently. Have you learned much yet in your inquiries into that? 
Um, we're still waiting for the voter files to be updated to see who actually voted and to compare that to some of the projected turnout models that we had. So that part of our analysis is incomplete. But we have looked at, you know, why is it that everybody in this industry, Republicans and Democrats, thought that Clinton was going to win? And one of our conclusions is that we all placed too much confidence in small leads. If we were in the same exact situation where the candidate wasn't Donald Trump and where the race was within two or three points, we would not have had the kind of confidence that we had going into uh, election day that we had this year. And why is that? I think that based on all the experience that we had, a candidate like Trump who was caught on tape saying extremely inappropriate and offensive things about women, who attacked a judge on his Hispanic background and and actually had a lot of false statements about it to be that as someone who just insults such broad pieces of the uh, segments of the electorate that we saw that that generally doesn't work. So it, our confidence in the small leads that Clinton had was a larger confidence than we would bring to a, a race that had More such conventional. a close. And, and so that's something, I, you know, I don't think, I think we can overlearn some of these things and say, yeah, I, I, I don't think that we want to take away from this election that everything Donald Trump did was successful. I think he actually pulled several inside straights along his way to win the electoral college vote. So I think we need to be careful not to give too much uh, credit or too much learning to, oh, well, anything can happen anytime. Instead, I, I think that we do need to be a little more careful when we look at small leads. But I assume that one of the other issues that has to come into play here in one way or another is that rightly or wrongly, a lot of people seem to have come away from the election saying, well, polls got it wrong. Are you having to deal with that skepticism at all from, from clients, from the public? Uh, some of our non-political clients have raised that with us. Hmm. And it's interesting because where the issue was in the political realm, the most of the political clients don't have the, you know, it's not like they're saying, oh, well, we can't poll anymore. Polls are meaningless. Mm -hmm. they, they recognize the value of polls. They recognize that they need it to achieve their goals. Uh, and uh, so it's not coming from that quarter as much as is from people who aren't experienced in it as much. And they say, well, yeah, everything, everyone thought Clinton was going to win. Polling must be wrong. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you one, one anecdote, and that is, one of the differences between the national polling and the statewide polling, where, you know, the national being accurate and the statewide being uh, inaccurate in many cases, was uh, there were fewer statewide polls and not all of them went up to the last minute the way the national polls did. And so things did change in the final few weeks of this election, especially after the Comey letter. And we had a client that two weeks out, we the the it was a ballot initiative, and two weeks out we were losing by four and the client wanted to continue polling through the election doing daily tracking so we continued doing that and we saw erosion all the way up until election day to the point where we're down by 14 points end up losing by 17 points 
Had we, our last poll been two weeks out when we were down four, client would have said, oh, my God, you guys don't know what you're doing. You said it was going to lose by four. We lost by 17. Instead, we kept polling up until the election. <laughs> and they said, well, terrible that we lost, but at least at least the polling was right. <laughs> so, yes, that's an example of a, of a folks who were involved in that are, are not – their takeaway from this isn't, oh, we got to stop polling because it's not going to work. But people who don't see that and people who are outside of the political process – um, we've had to explain a little bit and, and actually tell that story uh, to, to help them understand. Does the current political climate make the work you do feel more urgent? Absolutely. I mean, we are – I've never been so focused on a midterm election so far out from when it's going to take place. I right. mean, I, I, we 18, are – 19 months away from it now? Uh, it is – I. I th- the recruiting top quality candidates and developing the best strategy uh, that we can is feels more urgent than it has at any point in in my time that uh, in the work that I've done in the United States and you can see it in the streets of America and the the size of these rallies uh, whether it was the women's marches across the country or just the the spontaneous reaction to the Muslim ban, uh, it's, there's an energy and urgency out there. We're in an age where a lot of us worrying about the way things are in the world, uh, spending all of our time on Twitter, whatever it is that we're doing, uh, have access to polling data, to polls uh, in a way that we may not have in the past. Do you have any suggestions for those of us who don't have a data background, who don't have a polling background, maybe who don't even have a politics background, uh, as we're looking at evaluating uh, these pieces of information to figure out what's worth looking at, what matters, what doesn't? Sure. I think one of the things you can look at is the demographics in a survey. And if the demographics are in line with what the country or what that particular state or that particular congressional district should be, then then you're in good shape. Uh but if a survey doesn't present the demographics, that should be a red flag for you. Why aren't they telling me what percentage of their sample is male and female and what percentage of it is white and African-American and Hispanic and what percentage of it is broken down by age? And, and if they're hiding that, that's a red flag. Uh, in addition to that, I would also you can also look and see what the partisan breakdown is in the survey, what percentage of the Respondents are Democrats versus Republicans versus independents. And that will give you a sense of whether something is is misleading or not. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing your work with us. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. And we do read those emails, uh, we respond to them, and we learn a lot from them, as we've said before. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Thanks to Will Soliton, who shared some of his own insights into polling as we were getting ready for this episode. And thanks to Kalindi Winfield, who connected us with Gerstein. Thanks also to Afim Shapiro. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. 